This is A Drink with a Friend. I'm Tish Oxenreiter. And I'm Seth Haynes. Seth, what are you drinking this afternoon? Well, you know how I'm not a huge fan of LaCroix, that I, I prefer uh, bubbly and, um, and Waterloo. Uh, I mm-hmm. think maybe, maybe that's the French in me coming out. Mm-hmm. But, well, I guess LaCroix is French too, sounding at least. Maybe it's Probably Canadian. Frencher than Waterloo, yeah. Who knows? I don't know. But anyway, I am drinking the only flavor of LaCroix that doesn't make me want to head for the hills. And that is the limoncello. Limoncello. That is funny because that's the one flavor I don't like. I don't like what? limoncello. It's way too sickly sweet. It tastes like liquid candy. How is that I like possible? It. I don't know. It's just weird to me. So Wow. I thought that we were pretty much aligned on all things. We are. Yeah, no, we're a podcast divided on that topic. But let me get this straight. You like the coconut LaCroix? one of my favorites it's the worst <laughs> no, i mean it really it like it tastes like suntan lotion let's be honest um yeah maybe maybe okay. i don't hate See? that is that weird all right yeah that's kind of <laughs> weird but that's okay hey what yeah. are you drinking today i'm drinking english breakfast tea i'm reading the label right now because it's kind of fancy it's called it's from rare tea company and a reader uh brought this to me so a few years ago i had a fall gathering in my neighborhood and we stayed at guest houses and hung out like 15 readers came and That's she amazing. brought me a whole, it was amazing. And I want to do it again. Um, post pandemic, but, um, English breakfast, single estate, lost Malawi. Hmm. It's lost good. Malawi. It's simple. Not Tamale, Malawi. No, I said Malawi. Have you oh. ever, have you, have you been to Malawi in mm-hmm. your world travels? Oh. I have not. Have you? Yeah, I have. Actually, okay. I was in Malawi uh, on my way to Mozambique via the road. This was a long time ago before they had so many flights into Mozambique. Um, and the tea farms in Malawi are one to this day, one of the most stunningly beautiful things that I recall. Hmm. So when you talk about English breakfast, a black tea from Malawi, it makes me think of the Malawi fields, tea fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're unbelievably beautiful. Well, that is very cool. Perhaps you've driven by my very, you know, crop of tea leaves here. Perhaps. Um, Perhaps so. Okay. Well, this time we are sitting around the table accompanied by a third chair. We have got our friend Matali Perkins, friend of the show, who is a writer and a lover of books. And so she is basically cut from the same fabric as we are. Uh, Hi, Matali. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I have my own Malawi story. Can I... Can I tell mm-hmm. it? Please. Yeah, so I was born in India, but I worked for World Vision for a while when I was younger. And there was a, a, a brother from Malawi who was visiting us. And he, while he was visiting us, he had his fifth daughter. She was born in Malawi. And so he came to into the meeting. And he said, I just don't know what to name her. And so I said, hey, take my name. And so he did. So now I have a little, oh, wow. a little Mitali in Malawi uh, somewhere, running around. I'm probably in college by now. But anyway, that's my Mitali Malawi story. That was that's fortuitous. Ama- <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Okay, so Mitali, what are you drinking around uh, this afternoon? I have my coffee that is made every morning by my husband of many, many years. And I know you guys all have kids at home still. We do not. 
Mm. I, I don't know if you've read any of those habits books. Have you guys ever mm -hmm. read any of those? So one of the things, oh, we're trying, yeah, <laughs> one of the things we're trying to do in the empty nest is sort of entwine our habits because otherwise, I think we're going to go off on a different, different path. So coffee is one of them. He makes it. I wash the pot. He makes it. I wash the pot. So I have fresh brewed coffee this morning. Made by so how, how many times does that cycle happen in your family per day? Well, it's only once in the morning. We have, mm, we have okay. uh, but there are other entwined habits that we try to do uh, just to sort of keep ourselves going in the rhythm of the household where he does something then I pick up or I do something and then he finishes it. So it's, it's nice to do that if in the empty nest. Otherwise you're just sort of like, what? Goodbye. Tish, this reminds me, perhaps in the future, we should have a habits episode uh, because I know how you're so good at habits. I love the idea of habits and read all the <laughs> books on them. And maybe we should have Matali come back and we can talk about all of the habits and things. I like it. I like it. I think habits are a very trendy thing right now. Not trendy like they have suddenly come on the scene, but I think a lot of people think about habits, especially in the time of COVID. So yeah, not yeah, a good idea. Represent the people that start habits and then don't keep them. That will be <laughs> me. <laughs> well, then it's a whole continuum. I can represent the people who read all about habits. You can represent the people who read about and start habits and don't keep them. And Tish can be our shining <laughs> beacon of light. But shiny beacon of habitual light. Okay, Correct. habitual light. That's funny. Okay, but speaking of, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this together. Matali, you just told me before we hit record that you are currently working on your 20th book. Is that mm -hmm. correct? So you've yes. clearly cultivated some kind of writing habit for you to be writing your 20th book. Yes and no. My habit is a deadline. My age, my agent and my editor both know by now that without a deadline, Matali just sort of thinks and mulls over the topic <laughs> for a long time. So that my habit is they set a deadline and then I am in excruciating agony until I get that done. I just finished that process. So I'm, mm. I'm very relaxed right now. Was that fiction that you just finished? Yes. And, and it's 20 books. I don't want to minimize children's fiction because we're talking about the power of it today. But uh, most of those are books of fiction for young adults all the way down to picture books. So, um, so 20 sounds like a lot, but some of them are short picture books. So, but I count them because I think those are, those are powerful also. Oh, 100%. that counts. A hundred percent. How, what is this last book that you just finished? You just wrapped. What's it about? How long is it? Who's it for? Yes. It's a middle grade novel and it's about a, a it's set in 1980 in Silicon Valley, which used to be called the Valley of Hearts Delight because of all the orchards that grew there. And in the 80s, they were demolished, and uh, mm. all of these office tech buildings started popping up. So this little girl named Pandita is living in that place at that time. And there's an orchard across the street that she loves, that she escapes to, and she writes, and she uh, listens to the birds in the trees. And uh, that orchard is about to be demolished, and the town is fighting over what to do with that property. Hmm. Mm. That sounds good. You write most well, you write exclusively, I guess, for younger folks. But this new book you just came out, is it for adults? Yes, it is. I it thought it was because I love it. And I feel like you're writing to me. So right. tell, tell us more. It's called Steeped in Stories, Timeless Children's Novels to Refresh Our Tired Souls. Mm. Uh, I was a voracious, feral reader as a child. We immigrated here when I was seven years old and we landed in Flushing, Queens a newly arrived Bengali family of five um, in a hot, on a hot summer's day. 
And uh, my sister took me to the library for the first time. And after that, I was just, I was done. I hmm. read it every week and I didn't have any adults during me. I just found my way to books and more books and more books. So I think of my childhood, I call it a multi-storied childhood because I had stories from my father who was a brilliant storyteller about his village back in Bangladesh and in, in what used to what used to be Bangladesh um, is used to be part of India is now part of Bangladesh. And so I grew up with lots and lots of stories. Uh, and so this book is about is I wrote it to come to come to terms with some of the books I loved in childhood that are now deemed as problematic, especially <laughs> when it comes to issues of race, power, colonialism. And so I was rereading I reread these books every year, books like A Little Princess, Little Women, The Hobbit, the Narnia books. And I was rereading them and deriving that deep enjoyment I always get from rereading them, but also noticing that there were problems in each of these favorites that related to that era. And so I want, I wrote this book as an effort to make peace with those books and to understand mm-hmm. how to walk that fine line between seeing virtue in a piece of art and acknowledging the flaws as well, both mm-hmm. of the artist and the art. Mm-hmm. So give us, give us one example of that, of that, that, that dichotomy between the virtuous and then the flaws in the virtue. All right. Good question. So in this book, I look at the seven virtues, which are sort of classic in Western culture. And I look at seven vices, which are their opposites. Which, uh, these vices are just deeply embedded in our current era. Things like alienation and uh, favoritism, you know, the, that catering to celebrity. Let's take favoritism, for example, the opposite of which is justice. If you want to crash course in favoritism and justice, you should read a Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett, which I read at age nine. And it just absolutely changed my entire perspective on what it means to not favor the powerful, but to give the same deference to people who are on the margins uh, as you do to the powerful. So that is something that I grew up with rereading that book. And yet that book is enmeshed in colonialism. It was written during the time of colonialism, and it's just absolutely entrenched in that system. There's a servant called Ram Dash, who's this mystical oriental that shows up and has no backstory, ends up solving her problem. And of course, my father, our father was in London before the partition. He was sort of a Ram Dash, and he had a whole backstory. So I can't help reading those books and noticing that that not only the problem with Little Princess is that the colonial uh, endorsement is in the bones of the story. Mm. Not in one of the, not in a character that is a dislike that you don't that you dislike who is who is espousing colonialism, but it's actually in the very bones of the story, which is a problem with that book. Mm. Mm. Okay. It sounds like you're describing uh, government systems, societal systems. I mean, what you just described, right, is that the problem is in the bones. That there are times when there's no overt signaling of vice or overt signaling of power or racism or social injustice of any sort, but it's so baked into the the book itself, the novel itself, the societal structure itself that it becomes problematic and that we, we tend to uh, gloss over that uh, maybe. And particularly I think more, um, you know, for people of, of my skin color and my ethnicity and my gender, um, you just don't realize how baked into all of the the things it is. Is that is that what I'm hearing you say? Yeah, absolutely true. Uh, 
when a writer creates something or an artist, that writer is trapped in that era. That's true from 100 years ago, and it's true today as well. It's very difficult to see the systemic flaws that are creeping into your art if you're in the moment, right? So what we can do with these books from the past is we can use our own 2020, 2021, 2022 eyes to see what is happening in the past and we see things that they didn't see. But on the flip side, they see they saw things that really are lacking in our culture. For example, the the idea of favoritism. When I when I reread The Little Princess and uh Sarah Crew resists Miss Minchin, who is just a person that so represents our culture's view of the VIP, the uh the person who is more wealthy, who gets more deference, who's more celebrity oriented. When Sarah resists that, I learned to resist it too. And I see it clearly in my culture that's so, that really can't see how dangerous celebrity uh, culture is. So mm-hmm. I, liked, I like the idea of crossing borders. In all my fiction, I cross cultural borders. And when I read, I like to cross as many borders as I can. And so in this book, I'm toying with the idea that we need to cross borders into the past in order to be refreshed in the present, mm-hmm. but with discerning eyes. Mm. So I'm curious, Matali, what you think in our modern kind of cancel culture where a lot of our old beloved classics are being put under scrutiny right now. Um, where do you think is the line between, you know, still worth reading, especially in childhood? Those, that's a great question, Tish. It's, it's really the question of this book because I wrote it in, in the children's book world where I, I dwell this is a fiery debate because children are the ones who read differently. They read with their hearts and minds. So there's a level of formation that happens in childhood. It's almost like learning a language. When you read a story in childhood, there's a fluency of story that children are acquiring that shapes their character deeply for better or worse. And so the debate around whether or not children should read these books is, is very intense in the world where I am in the children's literature world. So the question of, of canceling, I've been to cultures where the government prescribes which books to read, mm-hmm. and those are not flourishing cultures. I, I do not, I, I, I'm not one who endorses anything but the width, the breadth, the depth of stories that we've had in the past. I want to see that continue to grow. On the other hand, we need to come into it with this idea that children must be multi-storied. Uh, we mm-hmm. can't offer a child just one story, one representation of a certain people, because that will be, that will be in their in that window of formation will be the way they see the other for the rest of their lives, right? That that's how they're going to learn the language of that story of that of that people that the story is about. So I'm a firm believer in a in a, a multi-story childhood because that's what I had, and so mm-hmm. what a multi-story childhood does is it allows stories to moderate each other, and it gives yeah. you a a way to resist the power of one story, because you're able to say, hey, I've got this story, this story, this story, this story. They moderate each other, the stories from my Bengali childhood, the stories from um, what I was reading in, in, the, in the past, the stories in the contemporary world. Those all moderated each other to the place where by the time I was in middle school, I could step back and say, hmm, that's interesting. That's an interesting way to look at me. Mm-hmm. I don't buy into it. I, I was resisting all kinds of stereotypes and tropes that were thrown my way in that all suburban, all white middle school that I started in seventh grade. I was just, I didn't buy into their idea of who I was because I was already armored by being multi-storied. Hmm. Mm. 
Yeah. So uh, another, uh, you know, when you name off all these books, one of the books that you said was the Hobbit, which is obviously I have, I have four boys. We love the Hobbit. We love the Lord of the Rings series. I, actually, my third born reads the Hobbit every summer. It's sort of his ritual. So this is his third time through it. He loves it. Um, I would be interested. Like, what are some of the what are some of the virtues you see in the Hobbit? What are some of the problems that you see in the Hobbit? Um, maybe things that we miss. I love the Hobbit too. Your that son and I would be would be friends for sure because I reread every year and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Discovered them when I was a teenager, um, and on my own, and just keep rereading them every year. They're in my seasonal mm. cycle of reading. And of course, the Hobbit is perfect for me because I I don't know how to pronounce. This is one of the vices of our culture that I don't know how to pronounce. It's pusillanimity. pusillanimity. I was just gonna say, is it pusillanimity? Yes, mm-hmm. that idea of shrinking back. Yeah. And when you're called to do to when you're called to adventure, which is really a hero's journey for all of us, when you're when your life is disrupted by some kind of unexpected circumstance, as Bilbo faced when Gandalf came and issued his call to adventure, will you shrink back and just stay in your hobbit hole and smoke your pipe and do the smoke rings? Or will you run down the street without your best pocket handkerchief? And catch up to the dwarves and start the adventure of a lifetime, which will shape you and change other people as well, right? That's the question that's going to come to mm-hmm. all, of, all of us at some point when we're disrupted in our life, that call to adventure. So for me, the, of course, the virtue is courage. And I am naturally not a courageous person. In fact, writing this book took a lot of courage because I'm addressing some of the most um, tricky, difficult questions in my world of children's literature uh, and I'm presenting it to my peers who are, who are, you know, just, I don't know. I don't know what the response is going to be. It just released yesterday. But this book took a lot of courage to write. But I feel as if I'm at the stage of life where I, I want to be the Bilbo. And I want to go and take on the dragons and find the Arkenstone and give it up. Uh, I want Thorin to hold me over the cliff and threaten to throw mm-hmm. me over the edge. And I want all of that. Because there's only, there's my, I always tell my sons, I have two boys too. My hourglass is flipped. The sands are falling down. If I'm going to have that kind of courageous, adventurous life, I have to say yes when those mm-hmm. instructions come. So for me, that's Bilbo. That's the mm. Hobbit. I love it so much. Yeah. The problems, of course, uh, I, I delve into his portrayal of the orcs, um, which mm. doesn't come so much in the in the, in the Hobbit, but more in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah. And his they're sort of racially oriented. His portrayal of the dwarves, which he himself admitted was um, based on Jewish people. Uh, mm. Although he defended when, when the Nazis asked him to come along and endorse their view of the Semitic people, he refused and he, he uh, took a strong stand against that. But he still said that the doors were Jewish and the orcs, of course, uh, when he was, he was in South Africa. So he later on came to, I think came to some understanding of how that was portrayed in the, mm. Those are portrayed in the book with their dark skin and their um, the way they look. So there's there's things to see and there's questions about adoption in the book. You know, Bilbo of course has lost. Uh, I mean, Frodo has lost his parents when he starts his call to adventure, but he's an adoptee. So there's lots of things to think about and discuss with your sons. But I feel that uh, if you ask the right questions in the book, I call these writers. There's seven of them. I call them uncles and aunties. Mm. So, uh, so this is Uncle J.R.R. Uncle Uncle uh, John Roll John Ronald is what his nephews and nieces called him. 
So I think of him like that. They're sort of like those aunties and uncles you bring to your Thanksgiving table who start talking and you love to hear from them. They're so wise. But then they say that awkward thing. (laughs) Oh my gosh, my kids are hearing this. How how am I going to tell them, you know, Mm -hmm. we love auntie Muriel, but she's got some outdated views here, you know? (laughs) So it's similar with these books. And yet I feel the same affection because all of these writers were so involved in my spiritual formation before I, um, even heard the name of Jesus at age 19, I was shaped and deeply formed by the virtues in these books and Mm. prepared really for a life of formation in the church by reading these books. Mm. I was, that was literally going to be my next question. um, Whether these books had any sort of spiritual formation in you, even though it's not literally the Bible or a holy text, you know, if you can look back and see how some of these stories spoke into your bigger story and the big story of life. Yes, 100%, which is why I went into the profession of writing these stories for children. As I said, there's a window of formation in a child's heart that really ends by the time they're teenagers, where their hearts are wide open to being formed by story. And so I staked my life on that by taking it on as a vocation. My parents immigrated here with great hopes that we'd be engineers and doctors. And then I had to go (laughs) go up to them and say, I'm going to write books for kids, mom and dad. It's not a great idea, (laughs) but I really believe it. It's absolutely for me, these uncles and aunties, I am forever in debt with them. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to come to terms with them and forgive them, really. It's it's about mm. forgiving the creators of the past, looking at them with compassionate eyes, because we hope that in the future, if any of our books last, and the future generations look back, <laughs> like my great-grandchildren say, how could our great-grandmother have written that into her book? Why didn't she see that flaw? You know, yeah. that's the work of maturity is forgiving the generations that came before. So hmm. I, I'm trying to do that in this book and, and offering them the same kind of love for neighbor, even though they're dead and gone, that I would try to offer them if they were at my Thanksgiving table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's something missing from our culture, the ability to forgive the past, the the past works, I should say, not forget it, but understand the context. Right. And, and and each of us will have our own uh, narrative of forgiveness because all of us are impacted in different ways by what yeah. happened in the past. And some of us are still having the repercussions and the consequences far more deeply than others of us. And so mm-hmm. the extent of forgiveness is going to be much, much greater for, for some readers and some people who look back at statues or mm-hmm. uh, sonatas or paintings and realize that there's, their bodies are still bearing the wounds. Uh, that's going to be a much deeper, harder work of, of forgiveness and reconciliation um, than somebody who can just step back and say, well, I forgive them because. So, yeah, it's, it's different yeah. for each of us. And that's the mystery of a story. It's an interaction between a reader and a writer. It's a relationship around a piece of art between the artist and the person receiving the art. And, of course, the unseen storyteller who's also mm-hmm. involved. Mm-hmm. Were there any of these sort of great works when you were growing up, these great child works or, or young adult works, I think we'd call them now, um, that you read them and you like you just caught the tension at a young age, you didn't like it, it put you off, it turned you off, um, there was something problematic in your spirit that, that you had to wrestle with at a younger age and you've now come to appreciate that? Yes, uh, The Secret Garden by the same author, Frances Hodgson Burnett. Her, her uh, nephews and nieces called her Auntie Flafina. I couldn't bring myself to do that. So she's <laughs> Aunt Frances hmm. in the book. 
in the in the little princess, the second scene when she's actually in the moor uh, on her in her uncle's estate, she meets a servant girl named Martha, who uh, pulls back the coverlet to see if she's one of the yellow Indians, yellow skinned Indian heathens. Mm. And Mary, the main character, gets furious. She says, "You thought I was a daughter of a pig? You thought I was an Indian?" And the and she and the girl Martha says, "Oh, I wouldn't mind if you were." I there, you know, there. She has a very benevolent reaction to the fact that Mary might be Indian, but Mary herself, the hero of the story, mm-hmm. says, "You thought I was a daughter." And I remember at nine thinking, "Wait, I'm Mary reading this book, but I'm also." The ayah, the servant, the daughter of the pig. And mm. it was shocking. Uh, and yet even then, I was already multi-storied enough to understand that every artist is flawed, every book is flawed, and that I needed to have a robust defense to people who were trying to peg me into a story. And so I went on and read, still imagining myself as Mary. And of course, in the course of the book, she changes. She starts out as being very rigid and loveless and... Um, and she ends up really her, that story is a story of her coming to life and finding healing and wholeness. So I was able to forgive her by the end of the book. And I think, um, I think already by then at nine, 10, I was in multi-story enough to resist that one subverse, that one thread, uh, a racist thread already didn't penetrate my heart and devastate me in any way. Yeah. 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 So you mentioned a few minutes ago that you read things on a cycle. As an adult, you continue to read children's books, which I think is both really cool and really astounding because my TBR stack never ends, right? It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And so I'm quick to say, well, I would love to reread that, but I've already read it and I've got so many other things I want to read. Tell me your reasons for rereading beloved stories, especially children's stories as an adult. Well, I know, I know, Seth, you've written a book on, on addiction, right? You understand uh, that <laughs> yes. whole issue. Well, uh, for me in the stress of an immigrant life, when I mm-hmm. we lived in New York City, that money was tight. My parents were, didn't understand the culture. There was lots of fighting going on. Um, I would crawl out on the fire escape and I would read these books and I would feel just the heat come down. And they were always usually accompanied with a roll of sweet tart candies or <laughs> salt and vinegar potato chips. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like that question is interesting to me because this is where I go to re- be refreshed and to relax. This is where I go to numb the pain. Mm-hmm. I go into those old stories that numb the pain back then. And, um, you know, what's the alternative? Just eating salt and vinegar potatoes just by myself without the story? Mm-hmm. No. What? May it never be. So they do. They still refresh mm-hmm. me. They still speak into my life. To When we're battling the forces in our culture, like alienation and favoritism and um, despair, when we read the, the headlines and um, all of the seven vices I cover in the story, you know, shrinking back from a call to adventure, uh, there's nothing like reading these books to refresh me. Get off Twitter, Mitali. Read. <laughs> if you want to think about, if you want to combat self-indulgence in your life, Mitali, get off Twitter where everyone is indulging themselves right and left and get back to reading Little Women. The mm. champion of temperance, Louisa May Alcott, your Auntie Louisa, she'll speak into your life again, refresh you to give you a, a sense that, yes, you too, you can lean into this virtue of, mm. so, of temperance, which is going to be, lead you to a place of flourishing. So for me, it's not a question of, oh, I should reread these books, but it's, um, 
But these are the books that I loved in childhood that I go to as a way to numb the pain, relieve the pain, and help me move forward in a in an era that is so difficult right now with these seven vices that I look at. These are the books that refresh my soul. Mm. Mm. So yeah. what I hear you saying is it's a better alternative than booze and heroin. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yes, I just, you know, I, I think they, it is, it's something that I go to when I'm in that pain. It's my first yeah. level. And when, when culture is crushing me and my own life is mm-hmm. feeling unendurable in it, what's unendurable. I, I do go there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I go in a quiet corner and unfortunately my is a company that I said by salt and vinegar potato chips, but it does bring the level down of, of the shriek, the psychic mm. shriek that goes on inside of us. Mm. Yes, to find healthy alternatives to those uh, addic- addictive substances that uh, we might race to, you have to find that middle place, you know, that place that gives you a way to numb the pain that is healthy mm. and life-giving. And that is my go-to, those books. Yeah, yeah, that makes yeah sense. so I'm going to take a risk here. This may fail miserably. And if it does, then we can just have Kyle, our amazing editor, <laughs> cut it out. But I wonder, because you reread these books over and over again, do you have any, is there a particular passage that maybe you have memorized or close to memorized that just really like, whenever you're in that pain or whenever you're in a certain moment, it just kind of comes out? Oh, well, I mean, I know the beginnings of the stories a lot. Um I think it's more picturing the scenes, like picturing Bilbo running down the path. Mm. Uh, when my imagination was formed back in childhood, I could see him, uh, you know, this little fellow forgetting everything and just chasing after that call to adventure. So it's more of the picture of the scenes. It's Joe and uh, Beth and Amy and Meg around the fire when Marmy comes in and says, this hungry family, will you give up your, your Christmas breakfast? And then she gives them their New Testaments and they start reading them in the mornings together with their arms around their sister um, and start following Pilgrim's Progress in that book, which is mm-hmm. such a theme in Little Women. It's more of the scenes that mm-hmm. I, I return to in my mind that I indwelled those scenes. I was in, in, in Concord, Massachusetts in the, you know, in the 19th century that mm-hmm. I was in that scene as a child. So I re I reenter the scenes more than it is any kind of verbatim. Mm. Although I can say Christmas isn't Christmas without any presents, said Joe, lying on the rug. <laughs> and I know the beginnings. I know parts of them. But the scenes are what feed my soul. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. Well, and, you know, I've mentioned this on this show before, uh, but it bears repeating um, I think the reason classic stories remain classics, you know, they stick with us is because at their core, they speak to something realer than perhaps even the current, what the current culture has to offer. So I was um, listening to Dr. Peter Kraft a few weeks ago, and he talked about one of the reasons he rereads Lord of the Rings and loves it so much is because the swords are realer, the trees are realer than the real world because they speak to something divine, you know, you peel back the layer to see what's really there. And so I wonder if that's what is happening when we read these stories, especially from our childhood, when they're so ingrained in us, you know, when we go back to the fire um, and conquered, it's because it's actually more real than perhaps the traffic we're sitting in, you know? Right. I think that's, that's absolutely true. Um, it's, it's WH Auden talked about, you know, breaking bread with the dead that mm-hmm. a truly human life, you have to leave your era. Otherwise, you you can't see. You can't be refreshed by, just by the voices in your own era. 
Um, and yet, again, we go back to moderation, where when we do revisit those scenes, we go back with eyes that see mm-hmm. flaws. We don't just come in, you know, with our heart, heart blanche open to, and say, oh, make books great again. You know, like that, that whole attitude that the past was better. Yeah. We, it, we moderate them, they moderate us. That's breaking bread, right? That's fellowship. When you sit together, you have a real conversation and you bring your strengths that person brings their strengths and together you find a way to learn from each other. So that's what I'm encouraging us to do in this, in these books is not to just some nostalgic feeling of, you know, of going to the British Moor with, uh, with Sarah crew. I'm talking about a real connection with somebody, a creator from the past and, and having a, a imaginary, but very powerful conversation as we moderate each other in that, mm-hmm. in that meeting of the minds. I think what you're speaking to, at least for me, is this uh, idea that there's like this literature isn't a zero sum game. It's not, hey, we go to the past and we hold it only for nostalgia or we only read it because it makes us feel good. Or um, it's not, you know, we don't read it all. We only read uh, modern literature. And I think, you know, you invoked Twitter earlier. Um, I don't know if you two know this, but there's a lot of fighting on Twitter. Did y'all really? know this? No. Yeah. People hate each other <laughs> oh. there and they really like to hate each other. Um, but I think it's kind of built in, especially in like the literary communities, which I think is kind of odd, sort of a zero sum uh, war of modern literature against uh, classic literature. Um, and I, I love the modern literature. The majority of my reading diet is modern literary, uh, modern literary fiction backed up by modern literary nonfiction essays. Um, but I, but there's so much goodness in the old stuff and it's not zero sum game. Like you, you got to read both. You have to have those things holding each other in, t- in tension. Uh, otherwise I, I think I find that the modern literature sort of loses its honesty. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's yeah. exactly right. That tension. Have you guys watched the chair on Netflix yet? It's no. A, oh, Tishy would love it. It's about an English department at uh, Pembroke Fake College, but it's <laughs> it's about the ch- a, an Asian woman who becomes the chair of the English department, and there are all these old school traditional teachers of English literature who are holding to that view of classic literature, and then you have a young black woman and a young Asian woman, and they're trying to bring in some of that the contemporary fiction. Um, and so this 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 battle between the old guard and the new guard, which I think takes place in every discipline, um, when you're talking, Seth, about tension, that is the key. That is the place where we will both grow and where we could best serve the world if we stay in that tension between the old and the new, between cultures. Um, but that's a hard place to be, especially yeah. without virtue, as you can see <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. Hey, come follow me on Twitter. I make my Twitter a little cozy space. <laughs> you can yeah. follow me on Twitter, but it's, it's I like it. It's a place where I social media is one of the places to practice these seven virtues. You know, whether it be courage or hope or faith, people long for these virtues. This is part of the way we're designed, and mm-hmm. so part part of my goal on social media is to offer them hope or to offer some courage or to just some humor, something that would allow us to stay to create a space where people from from different places can meet 
if, if, if somebody way from this side and way from that side says, you know, I really enjoyed a conversation with Metelli Perkins, then I think, oh, I've succeeded. I've, <laughs> I've done some good in the world, right? If I can bring them in the same room, wow. And if I can hold us together with a cup of tea, cup of Earl Grey tea from Malawi and some cookies <laughs> and allow us to discuss in a way that where we can leave feeling each of us has changed for the better, that's, mm-hmm. that's my hope. That's, I like the borders. I like the spaces between. And that's kind of where you end your book, right? There is a chapter near the end, something about sipping tea with the dead or, or how, what, however you word it. Same yeah. idea, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Exactly that. Uh, yeah. I don't, you know, I'm not, a, I'm from a rice culture, not a bread culture. So <laughs> tea works, works well for me. But the idea being that, um, yeah, when you have, when you share a beverage, like you guys are doing, why, you know, your, your podcast is beautifully named because when you share a drink with someone, whatever drink, there is that communion that's happening. And I, and I mm-hmm. think our Lord knew that too, right? Mm-hmm. He set it up that way. So, uh, so there's something about the table and about, about sharing, uh, bringing around people around the table to share a drink, to share some food and to talk about these issues. That, that spirit of hospitality is what I try to offer in my social media, which means I only go there in small amounts because I, the vices come at me and they come out of my heart and then I have to, retreat and clear mm-hmm. that all up and come yeah. back. There's wisdom there. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, um, what we like to do around the table to wrap things up is to talk about something that is adding more beauty, goodness, or truth in our life these days. And so, Matali, since you're our special guest, why don't you kick us off? Tell us one thing right now that is just making everything a little bit better for you. This is going to sound very narcissistic, but... Like this book just came out yesterday, and it is so beautiful. They <laughs> all out book with the cover. I have nothing to do with the cover. I, I, the cover art is gorgeous. Then when you take off the dust jacket, they put a little, uh-huh. a little beautiful little embroidered teapot. I'm just like looking at my book and thinking, what a beautiful thing. And I wrote it during the pandemic when I was battling all of these vices I talk about. So mm. for me, that this book is here in the world for better or worse. My, you know two fish and five loaves that God could do whatever God wants to uh, is a miracle to me because I struggled to write it. It took all kinds of courage and now it's beautiful and it's here and it's ready to meet mm-hmm. readers. I'm sorry. It just was released yesterday. So I'm just like, Oh my book. Never apologize for that. You're talking to two people who get it. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. And I will say that the readers, I mean, the listeners really can't, See, but we're on, uh, you know, a, a video uh, cast, and so I can. See, it's a beautiful book. It is it an is. absolutely beautiful book. It's so well done. Mm-hmm. Your publishing team should be proud. Broadly they should know. Yeah. Oh, Broadleaf should know that we're over here clapping for whomever <laughs> did the art. I mean, it's so well done. It's beautiful. Gorgeous. It yes. It's beautifully done. Well done. All right. So, Seth, what about you? What's adding more beauty to your life right now? Well, I did it, Tish. I finally did it. I broke <laughs> down and I picked up Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism. Okay. And the truth is, I didn't so much pick it up as a friend of mine, uh, Jessica, if you're listening, Jess, thank you so much, handed it to me and said, we're thinking hmm. about a lot of the same things. Have you read this? And I said, well, I know what it says, but no. And she said, here you go. And so I yeah. read it. I had to travel last week. I read it on the airplane. Um, and I did. I, none of it was new. Uh, some of the steps were sort of new. The way he he phrases how to do the digital detox was actually helpful from a practical perspective. 
But I think it just drove home the point that, you know, we're, we're entering into September, which is National Recovery Month, as you might know. Um, and in National Recovery Month, we don't just talk about booze and uh, drugs and, and things, those, those sorts of vices, but we talk about all vices. Um, and it just, just drove the, the point home uh, that this year, I think I just need to concentrate and think through my use of, of uh, you know, digital platforms. And so because of old Cal, who's not an uncle, I think he's younger than I am. So maybe he's like, he is, he's a baby. <laughs> yeah. What do I call him? Do I call him like cousin Cal or something? I don't yeah, know. Anyway, probably. Because of him, uh, I am on a digital detox for the month of September um, which is the, today is the first day and mm-hmm. I really miss YouTube. Can I just say that out loud? You can say it. You can admit it. Yep. <laughs> I admit it. I miss YouTube, but it's a really, it's really well done. It's a good book. It is not too late to pick it up for September. Um, and I would say if you're going to pick up any books on addiction in September outside of the book of waking up, which was, I highly recommend. So <laughs> since we're all recommending our own books, right. um, <laughs> But outside of that, I would say, um, you know, Cal Newport's book, Digital Minimalism, is is destined to bring more truth, beauty, and goodness to your life for sure. Yeah. No, I agree. It's a really good book. I mean, he gets really heady and sciencey, but sometimes you need that. You need to understand sort of the the behind the scenes of of what you're feeling. And it's a good one for that. Yeah. And I think the the heady sciencey part of it that says, you know, hey man. You you cannot beat your brain science, and the people who program these platforms know that brain science. I mean, I think for me that is like okay. I've heard Jaron Lanier say it. I've heard yeah. I've heard all the guys say it, but yeah. now I'm actually going to take it seriously. So yeah, good for you. Yeah, yeah. very cool. So all right. Tish, what are yeah. you what are you listening to, reading, watching, eating, <laughs> cooking, drinking that's bringing more truth, beauty, or goodness to your life? Well, uh, we are a couple of weeks into the school year, and even though I have mixed feelings about that, I always do. One of the things I do appreciate about a school year is rhythm and routine, um, as I'm sure you two being parents understand. And so for me, one of the rhythms and routines I really like adding to our family life, even if our kids kind of roll their eyes at it, is poetry. So I have these two books, um, and they're beautiful. They were first recommended to me by... Um, a friend, Andrea Dubbink. Um, so thank you, Andrea. And they're called, I'm looking at them right now, a nature poem for every day of the year and a nature poem for every night of the year. And they're gorgeous. So they're huge and they're beautiful. Talking about gorgeous books. So I've got them, got them in my hands. They're beautifully done. And um, they're organized by season. And so all you have to do is open up to the day. Like the other day, I just read, you know, August 31st. Um, you just turn the page to September and it's a nature poem, well-known, I mean, sometimes well-known, sometimes not so well-known. Um, and so like September 1st is song at the beginning of autumn by Elizabeth Jennings. And we just read it out loud. I don't, I don't try and make meaning of it. I don't sit there and like unpack it or, and ask the kids what they think. Most of the time they're fidgeting and wondering how much longer is this poem going to be, but that's okay. Um, it's, I feel like part of my job as a parent is to, um, cultivate their taste in what's beautiful so that they have a, a taste for what's really beautiful versus like the cotton candy of our culture, you know, so that mm. every now and then TikTok's okay, but you don't want a steady diet of it. But poetry is, is actual beauty, you know, and poetry about nature is really great. So anyway, these two books, we've just kept them out and we just open them, start the day, end the day. And um, I'm just going to trust that it's doing something to the kids. 
or nothing, but that's okay. Um, I'm doing, I, I love it. It's forcing me to slow down. And there's something really great about bookending your day with poetry that kind of help you remember, like, what's the point of all this? And it's definitely not Twitter. Yeah. Tish, can I say my father was a big believer in poetry, both Bengali and um, English poetry. Mm. He has memorized poems. So I still have those poems memorized, you know, and I think, uh, uh, what we have, what we hear, like you said, what we memorize. So I, I still, I wandered lonely as a as a cloud that floats on high over vales and hills. It, just so grateful that my father had us treasure that up. So keep it up. Good work. I um, love it. Can I add this book, Why Art Matters by Alistair Gordon, which sure. I've been reading. It's by a British painter and mm. by IVP, but it really is helping me now as an artist because Sometimes you sit back and you're creating art and the world is falling apart on around you, literally in fire here in California. And you're sitting there writing poetry and you think, what in the world am I doing? I should be out there helping people. And so this book's really helping me recenter that big vision of, of art. So mm. I should give a shout out for that book. That's good. That's good to know about it. All right. Well, we will put all of these books in the show notes that we have recommended. We've recommended a lot of good stuff today, including Mitali's brand new book out. Really and truly, if you love this podcast, you will love her book um, and all her books, really. But um, this this one that just came out, I think it is sorely needed in our um, modern culture these days. So uh, I'm grateful you wrote it, Mitali. So. Thank you so much, Tish. All right. Well, let's wrap this up. You can find this episode as well as all episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com. If you like what we're doing here on the show, you can help us keep it going by picking up the next round of drinks. You can do that in the show notes of this episode. You can find the link there or at adrinkwithafriend.com. And thanks so much in advance for your partnership. Little goes a long way. Uh, let's see. You can find me and how to connect with me, especially via my newsletter at tishoxenwriter.com. Seth, where can people find you? All the usual places, mostly sethhaines.com. Except not and, in September, right? Not in September. We won't find you me. won't find, you can find me in September. You can knock on my door. You can leave little <laughs> messages. You can do all the things. I'm just not going to open the blinds or the door. There you go. You're going to be the grumpy old man yeah. of the internet. I will. I, yeah. I'm, I'm kind of going to turn into J.D. Salinger. There you go. All right. Matali, where can people find you? I am the only Matali Perkins on planet Earth. So if you I'm with you. Matali Perkins, <laughs> you will find me. And I am Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, my website, MataliPerkins.com. But steepedinstories.com is the website for the book. And we're doing a book club, reading one of these classics a month. And I'll be moderating discussion. So anyone is welcome to pop in and out. It's totally free. Um, and join us for a discussion about virtues and flaws in these beautiful classics. I love it. All right. Well, music for the show is by Kevin McLeod and editing is by Kyle Oxenreiter. I'm Tish Oxenreiter with Seth Haynes, and we'll be back here with you again soon. Thanks for listening. And thanks for joining us, Matali. Thanks so much for having me. It was a joy. 